in light of the world around us, to be able to see people the way that you see them. And this uh, we pray, oh, so, so much from all of our heart, Father, to be better at in this world. And this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Ellen and I were uh, kind of ex- having a rare night at home together this last Friday night. And uh, we decided we wanted to watch a movie. There wasn't really anything on TV that we really wanted to watch. And so we rented a movie. And it turned out to be a, a movie that I had heard about. I had not really been all that interested in, in watching. And, uh, but we decided after we saw the previews, hey, this looks pretty good. It, it was a movie called The Letters. And it was about uh, kind of the, the beginning of Mother Teresa of Calcutta's ministry to the poorest of the poor there in India. And uh, I... Uh, you know, would have to say that, you know, I was, I, I thought I was one of those guys that kind of knew a little bit about Mother Teresa. I didn't know really anything at all after watching the movie that is based on the book that is based on the letters that she wrote during the, the six decades of her work in Calcutta. And one of the, the most astounding things to me was here is this woman who is a, a very, very, very uh, excellent and motivating teacher and 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 just excellent in her work who after observing the poorest of the poor outside the the windows of her classroom decides that 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 the, this 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 longing and this this pushing and this nudging that she feels in her heart must be from God, a call from God to leave the vocation of teaching and to enter into the poverty of the poorest people in India. And all of this was not just at a time when there was a lot of, 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 of poverty, which there still is in India, but it was, it was, not, just, it was not just a physical poverty, it was also a, a, a national poverty. As uh, India was beginning to make some, some changes in self, moving from being for the past 200 years under British rule and becoming self-ruled as a nation and the political conflicts between all of the different parties. And it wasn't just a time of, of economic poverty. It was a time of, in a lot of ways, a political and national poverty as well. And she enters right into the middle of that and just begins to walk the streets and just begins to minister to people. And she runs into rejection. She runs into resistance. She runs into some dangerous situations. But she believes wholeheartedly that God has called her into the lives of these people in such a way that she is to bless them with God's grace. I think a, a, a lot about, about how the gospel is supposed to change people's lives. And one of the, the great things of, about the gospel is it doesn't just change a status. We think of the gospel as changing us from a, uh, a state of, of, of spiritual darkness to spiritual light. That it changes us from being out of relationship to God and now in relationship with God. Of not being forgiven and now we are forgiven. We had not received mercy, now we have received mercy. And again, it's, it's, it's sort of like grace. You know, if we think only one-dimensionally about grace, then we miss the richness of 
of the marrow that's in the bones of what grace is all about. That we talked about this morning. That grace is really not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. And that effort is about living a life that is beautiful based on the love that we have received and how it transforms us. The gospel is the same way. We can't just think about it in terms of salvation. The gospel changes everything about us, beginning with that salvation, beginning with that status change with God from, from being outsiders to being now adopted as God's children. And one of the ways that Luke helps us to see this is to see that this is not something that happens in our own socioeconomic horizon. That it's not just our level, but it's, it's basically driving deep, deep, deep down into every socioeconomic strata that you find in every country, in every culture, of every age. And that's one of the things that we see in Luke's gospel. And it really begins... In Luke chapter 1, beginning in the first verse. Luke, as you know, is, uh, is one of the synoptic gospels. He's writing a gospel that, that tells the stories of, of Jesus. And uh, the sermons, of, the, the stories are told in sort of a sermonic way. And it's all to instill faith and to educate the mind and the soul and the heart about the Christ. And, and Luke, as, as an educated physician, very, very intelligent guy who has become a disciple of Jesus, has, has written these things down. And he writes, beginning in verse 1, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the very first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. What we have here is Luke basically writing down, uh, gospel being a different kind of a genre than just memoir or chronicles or biography. It's really just a, a, a telling of the story of Jesus in sort of a sermonic um, a, a parable-driven kind of way to, in, to, to uh, not only increase faith, but also to, to create faith in the hearts of people. And one of the things that you see at the very beginning is that, that the gospel comes at the very beginning to some, to some very different people than you would normally expect. But the book is written to this guy by the name of Theophilus. And Theophilus, you have Theos and you have uh, uh, Philos, which is related to the word love in Greek. Theos, obviously, uh, you know, connected to God. And so you have this person, Theophilus, who basically his name is translated the beloved of God. And there have been lots of conjecture about who this, this cat really is, that, that maybe he just stands for everybody that is beloved of God or who loves God. Uh, there's been different kinds of, of identity debates that have gone on through the centuries. Uh, I actually think that it is a person. And it's because of these words at the beginning of his name, your excellent or most excellent Theophilus. This is a title. We're talking about somebody who has rank in this world that Luke is a part of in writing about the Christ, which means that he's writing with that kind of a title to a somebody. And in the beginning, and not just in the beginning, but throughout the Gospel of Luke, you find the Gospel not just going to everyone but going in particular to nobodies. To the people who think of themselves in the world as invisible because of their poverty or their lack of education or where they live, their, their zip code. You find it going to people that at times religion has made 
to feel very, very small and to feel very, very much on the outside of the insider of, you know, uh, experience of Judaism in the first century. It, it's the people who think they're invisible that, that are down and out. It, people that don't think that they have the pedigree or the status or the power or the prestige or, or the friendships that will enable them to be able to move forward in life. And what Luke is showing us, is, and to this Theophilus in particular, is that the gospel is going to the people that most people in the world think are nobodies. So at the very beginning of this book, Luke is writing to a somebody about the importance of nobodies. And right there at the very beginning, you have these two births. The first one's John the Baptist. We're not really going to spend any time with him, but if you go to Luke chapter 1, verse 26, in the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth. Nazareth is in the middle of nowheresville. Um, you know, there's, there's these towns all over Texas. Uh, you drive 281, you drive 10, you drive uh, uh, 90, 290. You, you drive through these little towns. Um, and basically, you can call them reduced speed uh, resume speed towns. I mean, there's, you know, you know, basically there's no lights or anything in these towns. I, I think of um, uh, some of those those little burgs between uh, Johnson City and Fredericksburg. You're driving down 290 and you come up on a sign that says reduce speed and you go about 500 feet and it says resume speed and you just went through a town. You went through resume speed Texas is where you, is what you went through. That's what Nazareth is. Nazareth is in the middle of nowhere. But it's close to somewhere. There was a little town uh, five miles north. I shouldn't say a little town. It was actually, a, it was a big deal. Five miles north of, of Nazareth is a, a place called Sephoris. Now, in the first century, it was known as Zippori. And the reason it was called that was it, it, was, set on a, it, was, it was a city on a hill, and it looked like a bird sitting on top of a hill, Hebrew word for bird is Zippor. Zippor was the name of the city. And Sephoris is the Greek way of trying to make sense of those Hebrew letters. So it's Sephoris. And up until about 25 AD, it is the district capital of Galilee. And it is a city that has, it has an amphitheater. It has, it even has a beautiful, it, during the time of Jesus, had this beautiful cactus garden. It was, it was a political center. It was an economic center. It was an art center. There is, and, and maybe I'll, I'll, I'll show you in the, sometime this summer, uh, there is a mosaic, um, and, it, and it's a mosaic of the Mona Lisa of, of Israel, or the, the mosaic of of uh, the Mona Lisa of the Middle East. And when you walk up to it, uh, it, it's pretty faded, and you throw some water up on it, and and they don't do this very often because the water is fading the actual color of the stone. But you throw that water up there, and all of a sudden there explodes the color of this woman, this beautiful woman with detail and and, and with with texture and and with, 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 with substance all made out of stones, this beautiful woman, and, and it, was, it, was, it was an art center in that part of the world. And up until about 25 AD, it was the political center of, of Galilee, and in 25 AD, uh, the capital was, of Galilee was moved to Tiberias, right there, kind of the southwest end of the Sea of Galilee. And this is probably where Jesus and his father went every day while they were growing up. Uh, the word that is used to describe Joseph, we think of him as a carpenter. He is uh, officially and, and, and sort of professionally known as a tectone. 
which is the worker, uh, anybody that works with hard substances. And um, during this period of time, there were not a whole lot of trees, and there was a lot of construction going on in the forest. Um, and as a tectone, he was probably some kind of a stonemason. We know this word tectone. We use it in English a lot. Uh, an architectone was kind of the head guy of all of the stonemasons. And in English, we have the word what? Architect. And so Jesus' father probably knew how to work with wood, but probably was involved employment-wise by going to Sephora every day to, to do some of the building projects there in that town, and that's how he supported the family. Nazareth, which was five miles to the south, could not have been more different. There were very few people that lived in Nazareth. Nazareth did not have a very good reputation. It was considered to be out in the middle of nowhere. It, it was a town that was, con, constru, uh, um, uh, uh, was completely conservative and traditional in terms of Judaism. The name itself, Nazareth, probably connected to the Hebrew word Netzer, which is the word branch that is related to the Messiah. And they thought sort of conservatively, that the Messiah, they hoped that the Messiah would come from Nazareth. That's why they called themselves that. In fact, you'll remember that in John's gospel, Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, this is reduced speed, resume speed Israel. And there's this young girl, probably early teen years we don't know for sure but she was old enough to be engaged which meant that she was probably right around the age of 13 and to this young girl angel appears and says the most important job in the entire world is going to be yours And she is, the scholars believe, a part of, of a, 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 group, a, a Jewish group of people known as the Anawim, the, the pious poor, the people that were so poor, that were so humble in their status, so, so poor and humble in, in, their, um, in their, 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 the way that they were seen social, socially that they really could only depend on God to get them through day by day. And it's to this young girl that the angel says that God's son's going to be born in you. Not going to be born in the most famous womb in all of Israel. Not going to be born in an, the most educated or the most affluent or the most politically powerful family in all of Israel. It is going to be this Anawim. And you get an idea of where she's coming from when you read uh, what we call the Magnificat, beginning in verse 46. It's Mary's song. She says, My soul praises the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the, the humble state of his servant. If you turn the page, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down the rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. And what you have in this, this young woman's song about this great thing that is going to happen to her is the recognition that God sees the poor. 
that God sees those that in this life and in this world, in this good creation that he has created, that there are people who suffer and there are people who go from day to day depending only on God to be able to see them through because life full of thorns and thistles is making it hard to eke out a a, a sustaining kind of a lifestyle in which they can thrive and flourish. And she's taking on the most important job in the entire world. Birthing God's son. And God has chosen her. C.S. Lewis Lewis talks about um, that all of history sort of hinges, just the spear point of history hinges on a young, poor Jewish girl at her prayers. Humble and hungry. And it's sort of a foreshadowing of of, of what is actually happening in this birth that when you go to philippians chapter 2 what is it that that paul how does paul describe the birth of jesus he doesn't talk about it in terms of of the science and the biology he talks about it theologically and what's happening spiritually as as god the son who is equal with god the father and god the spirit with but that equality with god the father is not something that he is clinging to And the word is kenosis. He empties himself. He makes himself nothing in order to leave everything that he had in heaven in partnership and perfect harmony and and perfect fellowship with the triune God of which he was a part to come down and to become a man and not just a man but a servant and not just a servant who's obedient but a servant who's obedient unto God death and not just death but death on a cross which means that he is going to become cursed and rejected and jesus is trying to help us to see that by giving us all of those great reversals that he teaches all the time if if you want to be great you've got to become a what a servant if you want to be first you've got to be The great reversals he taught over and over and over again were a reflection of his own experience. Well, it doesn't stop there. In chapter 2, there's this census. And Quirinius is, is the governor. Caesar Augustus is the king of the world. And he issues a decree that there's going to be a census. We need to raise the taxes. We want to make sure that we got everybody accounted for. It was taken in the entire Roman world, which was a big world at that time. And what he made everyone do was to go to their own town to register. And Mary is pregnant. They're living in Nazareth. They're supposed to go to Joseph's hometown, his family town, which is Bethlehem, which is just a few miles south of Jerusalem. The distance is about 80 miles. In about two weeks, uh, my daughter Jessica is going to give birth to Ellen and my first grandbaby, a daughter, Blair Cameron. And uh, today at lunch, my daughter, she looks like she's about 36 months pregnant. I mean, she just, I mean, she's just, she's, she's at that state. I, I don't know it personally, but I, I just look at it. She's miserable. And the distance from, from Nazareth, where she lives, to Bethlehem is about 80 miles. The distance from here, approximately, to Bandera. And I'm thinking about this this afternoon and going, you know, says her, Augustus didn't really care that Mary was pregnant, but could you imagine being pregnant 
and having to walk. I mean, it, there, there's really, there, th- that I can find, there's really nothing to say that she rode anything. She just made the journey. We like to think that, you know, maybe somebody was generous and gave her, you know, something to ride, but there's nothing in the text that says that. She walked from San Antonio to Bandera. And when they get there, um, family has, has uh, you know, as everybody did in, in the ancient world that could, you know, with time and with resources, would build, you know, guest rooms onto a house. It was just, you know, the Cataluma were just this, this guest room. It wasn't really an inn. There were no inns during this period of time, at least not one that, that a, a good Jewish girl would want to stay in. You stay with family. Hospitality, it's a, it's a shame, honor-driven society. Hospitality is the way that you gain honor in everybody's eyes. So they're going to stay in the Cataluma, the family home. But the problem is, is that she's pregnant. And what happens when, when a pregnant woman gives birth or the water breaks or what these things begin to happen what happens to that room of the house it becomes unclean ritually unclean which means that nobody else can stay there so what they do is they move her down into the area below the house i believe where they kept the animals if you if you look at uh, go to nazareth today there's a place and you don't know if it's the true place or not but it looks like the kind of place that would have been typical in, in Bethlehem during that period of time where people built the house in Bethlehem over a cave, and that's where they would put the animals. This last week, I mean, you can just, I, I mean, Ellen and I are all about the babies, and, you know, we're, I, she, <laughs> I, I'm getting a collection of baby books going, and, and every week, um, you know, the secretaries wonder what baby book's going to be coming in from Amazon. I'm, I'm started the Pout Pout Fish, the Skippy John Jones books. I got them all going. Ellen, on the other hand, she's more practical. This week, her project was to put together that pack and play, and we got a pack and play right there in the middle of uh, in the middle of our, our living room. And, 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 and it's, it's a fantastic thing. There were no pack and plays for Jesus. Jesus was not born and put in a crib or a pack and play. He was put in the place, probably hewn out of stone, the place where you feed animals. It doesn't really get more humble than that. And that is how the Son of God came into the world. And he's, he's born, and they're passing the time to allow her to recover because they are going to go, uh, the plan is to go back to Nazareth until, you know, there's that dream, and the angel says to, to Joseph in a dream, do not go home, you've got to go to Egypt, and the Magi are going to show up. But there's also another group. And these are the guys that are out in the field that night. The shepherds. And in verse 8, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the, their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all of the people today in the town of David. A Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. There will be a, this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in strips of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there's this great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem. 
And let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. And so they hurried off, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby. They found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what these shepherds said to them. You know, in a couple of weeks, when this grandbaby, this granddaughter, comes into the world, one I think one of the most um, one of the most emotionally fraught moments of my life is going to hold that baby for the first time and look into that baby's eyes and in that room to pray to dedicate this baby to God. Loved ones, family in that room, there at the hospital on that day. You know, these shepherds were, were, were kind of, uh, they were a different breed. Uh, you know, we think of, of ranchers and cattlemen. You know, these, this, you know, the, the, you know the, the heart and the backbone state of texas the cattlemen's association you know the, the the word of these guys being golden and 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 true and full of integrity not so in the first century with shepherds you know shepherds were basically the low lives shepherds were basically the guys that probably couldn't find employment in probably any other profession they, they were not seen as people of integrity uh, the talmud which is the teaching of the rabbis uh, that had been oral now being written down the the rabbis would teach people hey you know you shouldn't allow these guys to testify in a trial because their word is not trustworthy these are rascals these these fellas cannot be trusted how much more so the guys that worked at night and yet these are the ones that showed up in that place where the lord jesus was born Not, not the great people, not the political people, not the rich people, not the people of influence, not the educated people, not the ruling people, not the people of, 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 of any good reputation. But these shepherds come, the night shift workers, but the sheep, with the sheep, come into Bethlehem. And they're some of the first to hold this baby. And that's what, I think that's what Luke is trying to help us and Theophilus to see. He's trying to help most excellent Theophilus to see that God goes after everyone. And that not just the somebodies, but for the nobodies. The gospel is for the nobodies too. And that's how the Gospel of Luke begins, is, is helping Theophilus to see that those that are without reputation and those without influence, those without power, those without means, are the very ones that God is going after. You know, as you read the rest of the New Testament, you begin to see that that as the apostles grow and as those early disciples of Jesus begin to grow after the ascension of Jesus into heaven, 
and where he is exalted. And they are here to carry on that work, to go into all the world and to make disciples. What you begin to see is them identify with that particular part of Jesus' ministry. They begin to see that the most humbling thing that they have ever experienced is the truth about their own life. That, that the thorns and thistles are not just around them, but the thorns and thistles have gotten inside of them. And that there is absolutely no way on God's good creation that they're going to be able to find their way back to God except that God come after them. And in God's grace, He has revealed Himself. And in God's grace, they are redeemed as a free gift of salvation and forgiveness. And as an act of grace, they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and as, an act, uh, as a gift of God's grace to them, they begin to be transformed by that Spirit and through teaching. And, and God begins to equip them to do ministry. And they begin to see that one of the greatest things that a human being can do is to participate in the ministry of Jesus in, in sharing the gospel to whomever and wherever in all of the world, even the nobodies. And I think it's because they begin to see that in the truth of their own life, they were really a nobody when it came to God. God had more money than they did. God had more wisdom. God had more power. God had more influence. God had more status than they ever could imagine or understand in terms of anything infinite. And as a nobody in the presence of a God like that, God, through His grace, turned them into a somebody which meant that he made them his children. And they began to see that their job now as a somebody in the family of God was to help nobodies throughout the world become somebodies. I, I think that one of the things that we, we ought to reflect on as we go through this week is is every person that we interact with, every person we see, every person we have a conversation with, whether or not it's a formal conversation or something incidental, is an opportunity for God's grace to go into the world to a nobody in order for them to have a chance through God's grace to become a somebody. My challenge for you this week is to see the people you interact with completely different in light of God's grace and what it is that God's trying to accomplish in his human project. You ready for us to sing? We're going to sing a song. And if there's a way that our church can minister to you or help you, or to help you to understand how to become a somebody, how to, how to, how to, how to live out your life as a child of God in such a way that it brings glory to God and honor to God and it blesses people around you through prayer, through teaching, through counsel, whatever it might be, we're going to invite some of our shepherds to be right down here in the front and we want you to come down and talk to them as we rise up and praise God together. Father God, just for t-